and welcome to Mixed DNA Podcast, podcast with two mixed race hosts talking about any and everything. Each week, we pick a topic, do some research, throw in our own thoughts and opinions, and put everything together here to share with all of you. I'm Vanessa. I'm Melissa. Today's episode, episode number 44, is Mixed DNA and Egyptian History. Why Egyptian history, you may be asking yourself? Well, it's pretty interesting. And their history and their mythology, it's very ancient, which makes it even that more interesting. Plus, their architecture, art, and symbols are pretty amazing and have so much meaning that it's something I wanted to look into more, which is what I did for this episode. So today, we'll be taking a look at the history of the Egyptian belief structure, Cleopatra, yes, she was a real person, trade, and the arrival of different cultures, pyramids, race in the country today and in the past, and we'll end off by taking a look at tourism in Egypt today and what it looks like for those wanting to visit and explore. So let's get started, shall we? Yes. Egyptian history was the belief structure and the form of Egyptian culture from at least 4000 BCE to 30 BCE up until the death of Cleopatra VIII, who was the last ruler of the Ptolemaic dynasty of Egypt. The Ptolemaic dynasty controlled Egypt for almost three centuries until they fell to the Romans. Oddly, though, the dynasty never became Egyptian, as they were isolated in the city of Alexandria, where everything was Greek, from language to culture. The family never married outside of themselves, and brothers married sisters, and uncles married nieces. The last queen, Cleopatra VIII, remained Macedonian, but did speak Egyptian as well as many other languages. Every aspect of life in ancient Egypt was informed by stories that related to the creation of the world and the sustaining of the world by gods. Egyptian religion influenced many other cultures through transmission via trade, which was extremely widespread during the time of the Silk Road, starting in 130 BCE as the port city of Alexandria was a commercial center. Significant elements from Egyptian mythology that are still relevant in many cultures around the world today include the concept of eternal life after death, benevolent deities, and reincarnation. To the Egyptians, one's eternal journey began with the creation of the world and of the universe, which came from darkness and swirling chaos. Their creation story of the world is as follows. In the beginning, there was nothing, nothing but endless dark water that served no purpose. Within this dark void was Heka, the god of magic, who was awaiting the moment for creation. Out of the watery silence rose the primordial hill, known as Benben, upon which stood the great god Atum. Atum looked upon the nothingness and recognized his aloneness, and so, through the agency of magic, he mated with his own shadow to give birth to two children, Shu, god of air, whom Atum spat out, and Tefna, goddess of moisture, whom Atum vomited out. Shu gave the early world the principles of life, and Tefna contributed the principles of order. Shu and Tefna left their father on the Benben and set out to establish the world. Over time, Atum became concerned for his children who had been gone for so long that he removed his one eye and sent it out in search of them. While the eye was on its search, Atum sat alone on the hill and contemplated eternity. Shu and Tefna eventually returned with the eye, which would later be associated with the well-known Ujjat eye, the eye of Ra or the all-seeing eye, and their father, who was grateful for their return, shed tears of joy. The tears fell to the dark earth, onto the fertile earth of the Benben, and gave birth to men and women. These new creatures had nowhere to live, so Shu and Tefna mated and gave birth to Geb, the earth, and Nut, the sky. Geb and Nut, although brother and sister, fell in love and were inseparable. 
Atum found their behavior unacceptable and pushed Newt away from Geb high up into the heavens. The two lovers were forever able to see one another but could no longer touch. Newt was already pregnant by this time and eventually gave birth to Osiris, Isis, Set, Nephetis, and Horus, the five Egyptian gods most often recognized as the earliest and most familiar representations of godlike figures. Osiris proved himself to Atum to be a thoughtful and judicious god, and he was eventually given rule of the world, and Atum went off to attend to his own affairs. Wow, that story was very, um, incestual? But, yeah, and all over the place. Uh, seems all very magical and mystical, but it doesn't really sound like a creation story. So whatever made sense back then definitely wouldn't translate now. I do like the names given, and I really like that it reads or is interpreted like a poem. I like a good creation story. And personally, this creation story is no more fantastical than our own biblical creation story. So that's why I think they're all interesting. I mean, they're all kind of similar, but, you know, each has their own little little idiosyncrasies, I guess. So the one we are most familiar with, obviously, is the Bible story from the book of Genesis. But yeah, it would definitely be interesting one day to take a look and share like different creation stories from around the world. For almost 30 years, from 3100 BC to its conquest by Alexander the Great and 332 BC, Egypt was the grandest civilization in the Mediterranean world. Egypt's majesty has, for centuries, entranced archaeologists and historians, and it has a study all its own, Egyptology. Sources of information about the ancient land come from their many monuments, objects, and artifacts that have been found and preserved from all the study of hieroglyphics, which are constantly being deciphered. This is one of the main reasons why you're bound to find Egyptian artifacts in almost every traditional museum you visit anywhere in the world. Two of Egypt's earliest periods that are known to us are now the pre-dynastic period, 5000 to 3100 BC, during this time, we see the gradual development of what we know as Egyptian civilization, where arts, crafts, technology, politics, and religion were developed, and the Archaic period from 3100 BC to 2686 BC, where we see the development of Egyptian society, including the important ideology of kings and the earliest known hieroglyphic writing. The following period, known as the Age of the Pyramid Builders, from 2686 to 2181 BC. I don't know about you, but to me, the pyramids and the large sphinx are like structures of like the greatest structures man has ever made. Like just the size of the structures is impressive. And considering they didn't have anything close There's to aliens. the kind of aliens. machinery and computers that we have today, it's purely like skilled craftsmanship and slave labor, but you know, craftsmanship. Around 2630 BC, the king at the time, the third dynasty's King Dostjer asked Imhotep, the architect, priest, and healer to design a funerary monument for him, and the result was the world's first major stone building, the Step Pyramid at Saqqara. The epitome of pyramid building culminates with the construction of the Great Pyramid at Giza, which is just outside Cairo, and to this day is probably the most well-known of all the structures. The Great Pyramid was built for Khufu, who ruled from 2589 to 2566 BC. The pyramid would later be named one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It is estimated that it took 100,000 men to build and approximately 20 years. The two pyramids at Giza were built for Khufu's successors, Khafra and Menkara. During the third and fourth dynasties, Egypt was sitting pretty in a golden age of peace and prosperity. 
The pharaohs held absolute power and provided a stable central government where there were no threats from abroad, even though they held successfully military in foreign countries like Nubia and Libya. These only added to their economic prosperity. Over the course of the 5th and 6th dynasties, the king's wealth began to deplete, most likely due to the huge expense of building pyramids. The absolute power of the dynasty began to falter as there was growing influence in the nobility and the priesthood that believed in the sun god Ra. After the death of the 6th dynasty's King Pepe II, the old kingdom ended in chaos. The first intermediate period that followed, where we see dynasties 7 through 10, were accompanied by famine and disease, plus Bedouin invasions and central authority dissolved, leading to civil war between different provinces and rulers. Into the 12th dynasty, there was an aggressive pursuit of foreign policy, and Nubia was colonized as they were rich in gold, ebony, and ivory, and many other natural resources, and the Bedouins who had infiltrated Egypt dynasties before were repelled. The kingdom built diplomatic and trade relations with Syria and Palestine, and undertook projects where they would build military fortresses and mining quarries, as well as projects returning them to the pyramid building. The last ruler of the 12th dynasty is where we see the first confirmed female ruler of Egypt, Queen Sobekneferu, from 1789 to 1786 BC. I think that there were many female leaders throughout their evolution. It just wasn't talked about much or at all, making it seem as though women were inferior or weren't able to be possessed by greed and power when that's something that all of us can experience. Women are creators of life, so we should be seen as closer to being godly than any man. But that being said, men wrote the history, so they made themselves god. I'm also very sure that the men who were rulers or gods had a woman, as they all do, and that woman, for all we know, was in control, but did it through the man so others would listen, as sad as that is. I find any society, especially from so long ago, with females in power positions to be very interesting, considering even up until now, women are so underrepresented in positions of government power, especially. I went through a little phase where I was very intrigued by Mary, Queen of Scots, so young and in power and obviously female, yet she was always looking for a man, kind of like Jennifer Lopez. So we'll hear more about female Egyptian rulers a little bit later on in this episode and uh, see if they were the same. Moving into the 13th dynasty, the second intermediate period from 1786 to 1567 BC, we see another unsettled period of Egyptian history. There was a rapid succession of kings who failed to consolidate power. The official royal government was relocated from Memphis to Thebes, and a rival dynasty in the Nile Delta also ruled. In 1650 BC, a line of foreign rulers known as the Hykos took advantage of Egypt's instability and took control and ruled concurrently with the native Thebian rulers who paid them taxes. Conflict eventually flared between the two groups, and there was war that eventually drove the Hykos out of Egypt. In the 18th dynasty, Egypt was reunited and restored its control over Nubia and began military campaigns in Palestine and would, would see a line of powerful kings and queens. The 19th and 20th dynasties, known as the Ramesside period for the line of kings named Ramses, who I best know from movies and TV shows, saw the restoration of the Egyptian empire with impressive buildings, including cities and great temples. It is during this time that we would see the exodus of Moses and the Israelites, as is noted in the Bible. Mostly all of the New Kingdom rulers were laid to rest in deep rock-cut tombs, not pyramids, in the Valley of the Kings. The Valley of the Kings is a burial site of the west bank of the Nile. Most of the tombs were raided and destroyed over time, with the exception of the tomb and treasure of Tutankhamun, 1361-1352 BC. 
which was discovered largely intact in 1922 AD. The mortuary temple of the last great Ramses, Ramses III, was also relatively well preserved. Egypt eventually lost its provinces to Palestine and Syria for good and suffered them from foreign invasions from the Libyans while its wealth was steadily depleting. Into the Third Intermediate Period from 1085 to 664 BC, there were many changes in Egyptian politics, society, and culture. The 21st dynasty of pharaohs gave way to local government officials and foreigners from Libya and Nubia also had power and left a lasting imprint on the Egyptian population. Like the 22nd dynasty king, King Sheshonk, who was a descendant of the Libyans who had invaded Egypt during the 20th dynasty, in and around 525 BC, Egypt became a part of the Persian Empire and Persian rulers began to rule the country under many of the same terms as native Egyptian kings. Their religious cults were supported and the restoration and building of temples resumed. In 332 BC, Alexander the Great of Macedonia defeated the armies of the Persian Empire and Egypt was conquered and then ruled by a line of Macedonian kings, which ended, as we already mentioned, with the rule of the legendary Cleopatra VII who eventually surrendered Egypt to the Romans. There would be six centuries of Roman rule where Christianity became the official religion. However, the Arabs would conquer Egypt in 7th century AD and would introduce Islam, which would rid the last remnants of ancient Egyptian culture and propel the country toward the modern incarnation that we are most familiar with today. If you haven't realized already, Cleopatra was not Egyptian. She was born in Alexandria, but she was from a long line of Greek Macedonians descended from Ptolemy I one of Alexander the Great's most trusted lieutenants. When the natural death of Olitz happened in 51 BC, the throne was passed to 18-year-old Cleopatra and her 10-year-old brother Ptolemy XIII. Her brother's advisors acted against her, and she had to flee to Syria, eventually returning with an army of mercenaries the following year to face her brother's army in a civil war on Egypt's eastern border. When Roman general Pompey was murdered, his rival, Julius Caesar, was welcomed to Alexandria and Cleopatra sought his support against her brother. Her brother eventually had to flee and is believed to have drowned in the Nile River. Caesar restored the throne to Cleopatra, and in 47 BC, she gave birth to a son named Ptolemy Caesar, who was believed to be Caesar's child. He was known as Little Caesar by the Egyptian people. And no, he did not make pizza. After the murder of Caesar in 44 BC, their son was named Co-Regent along with his mother. Cleopatra strongly identified herself with the goddess Isis and was consistent with Egyptian tradition associating royalty with divinity. Cleopatra was apparently one of the first members of her dynasty to actually be able to speak the Egyptian language and overall spoke as many as a dozen languages. She was also renowned for her irresistible charm, which worked in her favor when she eventually seduced Mark Antony. Mark Antony summoned Cleopatra to Taurus, which is south of what we now know as Turkey to explain her role in the aftermath of Caesar's assassination, and Antony was smitten. He agreed to protect Egypt and Cleopatra's crown. He left his third wife for her and moved to Alexandria, where they formed a drinking society known as the Inimitable Livers, which is a very strange name. Cleopatra would eventually give birth to their twins, Alexander Helios, the sun, and Cleopatra Selene, the moon. They ruled and dominated, and Antony returned Cyprus, Crete, Libya, Jericho, and large portions of Syria and Lebanon to Egypt. Now married to his fourth wife, Octavia, 
sister of Octavian, who was ruling part of Rome, Cleopatra would give birth to a third child of Antony, Ptolemy Philadelphus, in 36 BC. Antony would eventually reject his wife and make the move to Egypt to be with Cleopatra, where he would announce Caesar's son as rightful heir to the throne and award land to the rest of his children. This started a war with Rome, and Antony was stripped of all his titles. It seems like nobody should have married Antony. <laughs> <laughs> He's marrying everybody left and right. Cleopatra should have known from when he left his third wife. In the Battle of Actium, Antony and Cleopatra were defeated and separated, not by choice, but by circumstance. Antony heard a rumor that Cleopatra had committed suicide, and he fell on his own sword from the news, just as word arrived that the rumor was false. After burying her lover, Cleopatra locked herself in a tower with two of her female servants, where it is believed she used a poisonous snake, an asp, to commit suicide at the age of 39. Their bodies were buried alongside one another, and Octavian was able to celebrate his conquest of Egypt and his consolidation of power in Rome. One of pop culture's most known stories of Cleopatra is from the 1963 movie starring Elizabeth Taylor in the title role and Richard Burton as Mark Antony. Taylor's salary for the role was $1 million, <laughs> which was unheard of at the time. And by the time filming wrapped up in 1963, the estimated production costs were $31 million. The most expensive film made up until that time, which nearly bankrupt 20th Century Fox. The film premiered in New York City on June 12, 1963, and was favored by film critics, making it the highest grossing film for the year. The film received nine nominations at the 36th Academy Awards and won four for Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Visual Effects, and Best Costume Design. The film starts at the moment Cleopatra and her brother ascend to the throne, and ends with her death in the chamber with her two servants, as we already mentioned. It has been noted by critics that the movie isn't great, but the story is, and for that we can all thank the actual Cleopatra. I do remember watching this movie a long time ago, but I barely remember anything. Just visually, I can see her. I know she had a costume change for almost every scene, which is probably why it cost $31 million. I do think it's impressive, though, and very cool, but it's Elizabeth Taylor, so her fanciness goes without saying. I would like to rewatch it, as I have downloaded it many months ago. But like I said to Melissa, I would need to create a slot in life for over two hours, I would say three to four, to watch this movie, which is very hard. So long. One day, maybe. I've never seen the movie. I know. Shocker. I've never yes. seen most movies. So <laughs> it's, of course, on my list of things to watch before I die. But I do think it's on Disney Plus. So maybe I'll get around to it one of these days, even if it's just 10 to 15 it is? minutes. I think I did search and I think it's there. Oh, interesting. See, I didn't even have to download it. Um, I'm actually surprised I've never watched it, considering, like I mentioned earlier, I do find the history of Egypt pretty cool. Now that we've covered the history of ancient Egypt, let's take a look at how they contributed to the modern world that we live in today. For starters, they were amazing innovators, which for one example is the pyramids, which today still stand as a reminder of the sophistication of their architecture. Egyptian inventions in writing, math, makeup, and perfume are still relevant in today's world. Their legacy continues to live on in our daily lives. Through archaeological digs, bronze surgical tools have been discovered and stand proof of their advancement of medical skills specifically for surgery. 
Many of their medical texts, which have been discovered on papyrus scrolls, explain their recipes in great detail. Although they were believers in many gods and goddesses, they used herbs and animal parts to cure wounds and other health issues, not the unearthly forces and beliefs of their gods. As to be expected from looking at the pyramids alone, the ancient Egyptians were great mathematicians. They performed calculations and geometrical knowledge, allowing them to proceed with the structure of such massive structures. There is also much evidence that they were the first to come up with the concept of basic fractions as well. In terms of fashion and beauty, both men and women were interested in makeup and enhancing their physical appearance. For them, beauty was related to sacredness, and people from all classes of life indulged in the art of makeup. Women from upper classes would use creams and powders to make their skin lighter, and the most important beauty trend from ancient Egyptians, which is still very relevant today, is eye makeup. They would use black coal to contour their eyes, as well as malachite powder, a green mineral, along the eyelids. They would also use red ochre, which was used on cheeks and lips and henna to stain fingertips and toes. Using the elements that could naturally be found in their environment, they were prepared for the skin using a mixture of the carrier agent as well as animal fat, so they could be easily applied and stay on the skin. From looking at ancient Egyptian art, you can always see the great detail that went into the makeup around the eyes for both men and women. The galena, the coal, was at first used around the eyes to help shield the sun, and the coal and the malachite powder were applied using ivory, wood, or sticks made of metal. Not only was the coal used to help shape the eyes into a more feline-inspired shape, it was also applied to the eyebrows and eyelashes for added definition. I think it's very, very cool how makeup was made and applied. Um, the eye makeup seems to be making a comeback, or already has made a comeback, with the super sharp wings, big wings, or elaborate wings women paint on their eyes. I, well, my mom has a set of tables. One is a long coffee table and one is kind of uh, the side coffee a side coffee table beside a couch, so a small square, of brass Egyptian, it's like um, embossed on brass on a teak, <laughs> teak table. And I have it. I took it from her. When I was younger, I used to take um, paper and a crayon. And what is that called? Making, not making impressions. But yeah, I used to do that of the, the embossed Egyptians. I should take a picture. I could take a picture and we can put it on the socials if you want. It's pretty cool. I had to keep it. Like, if anything, I'll just uh, detach the, the legs and hang it, although it's massive. And teak is pretty damn heavy, so I don't know if I'll be hanging them, but anyway. And for written language, although the original Egyptian alphabet is no longer used today, they were the first civilization to use symbols to represent sounds, thus developing a written language. Initially, the Egyptians used hieroglyphics to express their ideas in written form, and over the course of time, they invented well over 24 alphabets. They also took things one step further and left behind the common practice of carvings into stone and developed papyrus for their writings, which was crafted from a plant of the same name that grew along the banks of the Nile. Eventually, other civilizations would follow suit and develop parchment, and eventually the Chinese invented paper in 100 BC. Hieroglyphics were the words of God and were used mainly by priests. The painstakingly drawn symbols were great for decorating walls, but for their day-to-day -day, they used hieratic, which was a handwriting in which picture signs were used for abbreviation. While the pictures can stand for the object they represent, they are also sounds. It's impossible to match our present-day alphabet with the Egyptian alphabet. In Egyptian, an owl picture was the sound M. 
and a mouth was a mouth, but also the sound R. Historians have come up with a simplified translation to help with understanding what they find in written texts from archaeological digs. It's pretty cool to translate your name into Egyptian hieroglyphics, for example. My name, Melissa, is owl, a reed, a lion, another reed, a piece of linen folded, another piece of linen folded, and an Egyptian vulture. Uh, Vanessa's name is a horned viper, an Egyptian vulture, a zigzag symbol meaning water, a reed, a piece of linen folded, another piece of linen folded, and another Egyptian vulture. We'll post a link and a photo of their alphabet if you'd like to see what your name would translate to. Why do I get a viper? Damn you, letter V. The Rosetta Stone, which is the key to deciphering Egyptian scripts, is a stone inscribed with three versions of a decree issued in Memphis, Egypt in 196 BC during the Ptolemaic dynasty. The top and the middle texts are in ancient Egyptian, using hieroglyphics, and the bottom is in ancient Greek. It is believed that the stone was originally displayed within a temple, but was eventually used as material for the construction of a fort near the town of Rosetta in the Nile Delta. The stone was discovered in 1799 by French officer Pierre-Francois Bouchard during the Napoleonic campaign in Egypt. It was the first ancient Egyptian bilingual text recovered and started widespread interest in its potential to decipher ancient Egyptian script. The stone has been on public display at the British Museum since 1802. Even though the ancient Egyptians are one of the past civilizations and people that historians and archaeologists have learned and studied the most about, there's still much debate in scholarly circles about the race of the original Egyptian people. When you see depictions of ancient Egyptians, they're usually white or brown, most likely the result of the assumed labor in the sun. Geographically, Egypt is part of Africa, where the racial landscape of many people's ancestors were black, but Egypt also borders what we now refer to as the Middle East. On today's map, Egypt borders Libya to the west, Sudan to the south, Israel and the Red Sea to the east, and the Mediterranean Sea to the north. Historical evidence from texts, artwork, and mummy sarcophaguses suggests that ancient Egypt was ethnically diverse. There wasn't one particular race like you would find in Kenya or China, for example. It's also worth remembering that the ancient world didn't have the skin color distinctions we insist on having in society these days. In ancient times, people were usually classified by the region they were from and where they lived. So it's safe to assume that there were white people, brown people, and black people. Many argue that ancient Egypt was a predominantly black civilization populated by sub-Saharan Africans, which seems very logical considering the geography I just explained. These same scholars even argue that all Black people were descended from ancient Egypt. Since the Nubians were so predominantly mentioned throughout ancient script, it is also safe to assume that there were and are many mixed races. Nobleman Mayerpri was buried in the Valley of Kings, and we know of his skin color from his mummy, and from illustrated manuscripts that his skin appeared darker than many of the other more widely circulated images of Egyptians. He was most likely Nubian or of Nubian descent. Queen Amos Nefertiti is also identified as black, and she was worshipped because her skin echoed both the fertile earth and the netherworld death. Lady Rai, a lady-in-waiting for Queen Nefertiti, was also black, as her mummy was in very good condition when unearthed, and her skin was darker and her hair braided. 
In more recent years, scientists have done DNA tests on tissue and cartilage from mummies and have made discoveries that suggest many ancient Egyptians are closely related to the people from Middle Eastern Mediterranean, the land that today is Jordan, Israel, Turkey, Syria, and Lebanon. This type of theory ties in with the brown skin we are able to see and depict on many surviving Egyptian artworks and artifacts. However, it is also argued that due to limited supplies and what they had on hand, only certain colors of pigments could be depicted. As we mentioned earlier, women played a significant role in ancient Egypt, and there were many female rulers. One of Egyptian civilization's central values was mat, the concept of harmony and balance in all aspects of one's life. The balance transcended into their art, architecture, religious practices, government agencies, and gender roles. Women in ancient Egypt were equals with men in all aspects except occupations. Men fought, ran the government, and managed agriculture and livestock. Women cooked, sewed, and managed the household. Which, to me, kind of doesn't sound too different than the stereotypes we still perceive today. But let me continue, and you'll understand the equality compared to what we know of Western societies. Women in ancient Egypt enjoyed the same rights under the law as a man. See, it's different already. What rights a woman had depended on her social class, not her sex. All property descended in the female line, mother to daughter. Perhaps this functioned on the belief that maternity is a matter of fact and paternity as a matter of opinion. Women could buy, sell, and be a partner in legal contracts, wills, and witnesses in legal documents. To sum up, women in Egyptian society enjoyed greater social standing than women in almost all other societies at the time. All these laws can and should apply, but somewhere it stopped and men decided to make women less, even though we are just as capable as men. Maybe not in battle, not to say that women can cannot succeed in battle, but men are biologically stronger than women. There is definitely still classism, and I think that would be something that would be prevalent for a long time, unfortunately. Known best for its ancient civilization and rich history, there is more to Egypt than meets the eye. It's not usually on people's list of immediate places to visit, but it's definitely a place people should consider. Obviously, who wouldn't want to see the Pyramids of Giza or the Giant Sphinx? And ride a camel to get there, maybe? I wouldn't want to ride a camel. We've read that there isn't much to see in the Giant Pyramid, but you can, for a fee, go inside. A better visit or a more cultural visit would take you to the tombs in the Valley of the Kings or into the tunnels of the Bent and the Red Pyramid. Aside from the pyramids, Egypt is home to the longest river in the world the Nile. The Nile is around 6,695 kilometers long and flows into the Mediterranean, and there are several attractions along with its length, including the cities of Luxor and Aswan. While in Egypt, you can also follow in the footsteps of Moses and visit Mount Sinai, which is a religious holy site for many religions including Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. If you're not familiar, this is apparently where Moses read the Ten Commandments from God. The Red Sea off the coast of Egypt is also considered one of the best dive spots in the world, and Egypt has some of the most beautiful beaches with natural pools and crystal blue waters. Definitely on my bucket list of places to visit. I'm really a sucker for educational trips. I like to see things firsthand that I never thought I would. Monuments you usually see in like TV or movies or postcards. I want to see them all in real life. We've covered a great deal today, and I'm glad we took the time to educate ourselves and hopefully you on the culture and history of ancient Egypt. 
Thanks for tuning in, and remember to give us a great rating or follow or subscribe to Mixed DNA wherever you get your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media, where each week we post links and relevant information pertaining to each week's podcast topic. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mixed DNA Podcast. Bye, and thanks again. See you later.